All right, we're live. Another episode of Monero Talk. We're with Howard Chu. Um, you're uh, you're one of the core devs. Is that correct? I guess you can say that. I don't know if there's actually a title of core dev, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I mean, I think there's there's a ton of things that uh, we could actually talk about. I have I have lots of questions, but uh, I, I guess I wanted to focus on the random JS proposal that you've recently uh, been discussing. Are, are you the originator of, of this concept? Uh, let's see. Well, there was. Uh, it actually came off of another Reddit thread. Um, so the original suggestion came from someone else, but I kind of took it and ran with it, yeah. Cool. Um, I guess before we get into it, I know you don't have a lot of time, so I don't want to spend too much time going into other questions, but I guess maybe just a quick background. I know you have... Uh, um, you know, an interesting background in in open LDAP. I, I, I'm not right. very familiar with it, but I assume there might be some connection to that world and how you got into the crypto world. Uh, okay, well, so open LDAP is an open source uh, directory project. Uh, it's heavily used in enterprise software. Um, you know, we actually just had our 20th anniversary this, uh, this past fall, or this current fall, actually, yeah. Uh, and I've actually been working on that project uh, almost from the very beginning, so 20 years on that. Uh, the connection into cryptocurrency is kind of indirect. I mean, I've worked on a lot of cryptography software before. I've worked on OpenSSL for several years, uh, and I've worked on Kerberos and a couple other projects. Um, but the connection here came through LMDB, the database engine that I wrote for OpenLDAP. And that... Uh, that became the database that the Monero guys selected for the blockchain. Okay. So were you were you interested in Bitcoin as well before that? Or is that what kind of brought you into crypto? Yeah, I completely dismissed Bitcoin when I first heard about it. Uh, I said, you know, this is, this is a linear data structure that they expect to have global reach. It'll never scale, it'll never work. And I just said, yeah, this is garbage. Uh, so I completely ignored it. Um, and I only got into cryptocurrency because of the Monero project reaching out to me to use uh, LMDB. Yeah. Mm. Now, so has your opinion of Bitcoin changed since then? Or how, I mean, obviously it's changed in, in some way, but what has kept you kind of in the, in the Monero world versus, you know, being pulled into uh, the Bitcoin maximalist uh, zone? Oh. Well, you know, it's it's obvious, right? Uh, Bitcoin is not fungible, and Monero is. You know, uh, for for all these projects that call themselves uh, cryptocurrencies, you know, none of them, none of them live up to the name. You know, crypto means hidden, and currency <laughs> requires fungibility, and you know, none of those other projects uh, amount to that. You know, Bitcoin or any others. Yeah, couldn't couldn't possibly agree more. <laughs> Um, so I guess if you want to jump right into then the, uh, the ASIC resistance, maybe if we could give just like a quick little background on that. Um, why do you think ASIC resistance is, is something Monero should be striving for? Uh, and, and what is it essentially? What are we trying to achieve with that? Okay. Well, uh, I think it was actually spelled out in the original, uh, kryptonite white paper, um, the idea is, uh, you know, if you 
if you look at how CryptoNotes started, it's obviously uh, was written by people who had observed Bitcoin over the course of years, you know, and they saw that Bitcoin mining had become heavily centralized in a couple of uh, you know, a couple of mining pools, whatever, all based in China. And that centralization was largely fueled by uh, the development of ASICs for Bitcoin mining, right? Um, and so if you, if you follow this in the CryptoNote paper, you know, they, the basic point is uh, when you allow ASICs to, to dominate your currency, you know, you, you've, you've got a very strong force for centralization because not everybody can access these, uh, these ASICs. Um, you know, the people who are manufacturing them tend to uh, hoard them to themselves preferentially. You know, so there's no um, egalitarian access to these things. Uh, and so, you know, that, that really does violate one of the principles of, uh, of a permissionless blockchain where you want everybody to have the ability to use it. Um, centralization really harms that principle. Do you, do you think Bitcoin has become more centralized over is this is this something that we could actually measure measure that we know is actually happening i mean are oh, asics yeah. actually having this negative effect of centralizing things uh absolutely uh in fact uh if you look um if you if you follow uh emin gun sir he's he's been a crypto developer for quite a long time and uh one of his uh uh, writings over the past summer was uh, showing centralization both in Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, they actually measured uh, the number of uh, mining pools, the geographic distribution of them, and a couple other factors. And you can see that um, Bitcoin is highly centralized. Uh, Ethereum is centralized too, as well, you know, to a large extent, but I think Bitcoin more so. Is it fair to say Monero is seemingly one of the most decentralized coins? I mean, you know, large cap coins? Uh, I think at this point, probably, you know, certainly we've paid the most attention to, you know, encouraging decentralization. And now, so what do you think long-term overall? I mean, I, I feel like even within the Monero community, there's kind of a few different ways of looking at it. Um, is it that we want to the goal i guess is we could all agree is to maintain be as distributed as possible now does that necessarily mean we always need to stay asic resistant or are there is there you know a, a future a possible future where asics eventually do come in but in such a way where we can maintain our, our distributed nature uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting question, and most people believe the latter. What you just said that in somewhere down in the future, you know, um, ASICs will become common enough and accessible enough that uh, we don't have to worry about resistance anymore. Okay, um, now I look at that and I'd say the average user or consumer, you know, isn't going to go to the store and buy an ASIC box, you know, no matter how easy they are to get, they're not going to do it. That's just, it's not an, anywhere on their radar. So the only way this happens is if um, whatever this acceleration chip becomes is already bundled into a device that they already care about, like a cell phone, you know. So until that point, uh, decentralization with ASICs is not going to be a reality, all right? So 
Um, you know, people talk about that. Uh, you know, people talk about that right now, saying, "Oh, there's more companies entering the market, uh, building and selling ASICs," and so this is this is already uh, promoting decentralization. And I, I think that's false you know, because the average miner just, I mean, or the average user, crypto coin user, isn't going to be on board with those. Right. So, because you're saying because of the nature of the ASIC, which is specialized hardware, which it can yeah. only really be used for proof of, for you know, purpose. proof of work, that yeah. it's really never going to become a part of our daily technology. Exactly. I don't see that happening. Now, I think there's arguments that are being made that that's all that will, that's what makes ASICs. I've heard things, you know, game theory arguments that that's kind of a positive for ASICs. Uh, because if you have if it, if ASICs can only be used for mining, um, then they could. There's no incentive to use them to harm the network, um, because then it's like you you get you, you know you don't want to kill kill the, uh, the 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 hand that's feeding you, right? So then you, you right. if if you use them to attack attack a network and then essentially. Uh, end up killing the network by uh, um, whatever it is, fifty-one percent attack, whatever. Um, then at that point, you know, game theory-wise, what do you now? What do you what are you going to do with all these ASICs if you can't use them for something else? Sure, yeah, and that's probably a valid argument in the long run, but it's not um, it's not an airtight argument. You know, if somebody says, oh, you know, we now have 51% of the network, but we don't want to kill the network because it would harm our profits. Still, once in a while, you know, Big Brother might come along and say, hey, would you please, uh, you know, divert this transaction or Spencer that one? And and in one-off instances, that could happen without anybody seeing. You know, so, um, yeah, in the long run, they don't want to kill it, but that doesn't mean they won't poke and and subvert it occasionally mm -hmm. right and it's just theoretical yeah. so, so how is that conversation going then in the community are are um you know i i kind of the 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 inner crowd the the guys who really understand this stuff um and that are kind of really making you know the policy decisions where are people at then overall are is there are there people leaning then towards this? We we should aim to st stay ASIC resistant. Is that kind of uh, catching fire a little bit? I think for the near term, that's that's definitely the case. Yeah, you know nobody nobody uh, nobody thinks within the next six months or next year that ASICs will be commoditized enough. Uh, so yeah, in the in the short term, definitely we're we're still fighting that. And then, so the next question becomes, and I guess this is where random JS, I think, starts to become part of the conversation. Um, do we do we hard fork every six? I mean, we that seems to be the case, right? We're we're doing these upgrades every six months. Do we fight a six off in that manner, or is there something else that needs to be done? To, to uh, okay, you know, yeah. So Monero already does an upgrade every six months. That's just that's just normal, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what was unusual on this upgrade and the previous one is that we changed the mining algorithm each time. Uh, now, I believe that's not a sustainable model going forward. You know, we can't keep on doing these minor tweaks to the mining algorithm, um, partly because uh, 
it's hard to do these tweaks. We have to keep them secret almost to the last minute, you know, to the last day before the release uh, to, to make sure that no manufacturers get a head start. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, uh, it's awfully easy to make a mistake. And, and suddenly we have a mining algorithm out there that has a backdoor or uh, a shortcut that we don't know about. Yeah. So there's a danger in continuing the approach that we have. Now, obviously, these first two upgrades, you know, the first one, uh, you know, we did as quickly as we could a little tweak that would break any existing ASICs. And that, that was its, its only purpose. You know, we knew this is a very small tweak and any hardware manufacturer can easily patch it into their next board revision, All right. Uh, the second tweak uh, is a little more extensive. It would take a little bit more work for an ASIC designer to accommodate it. But you know, overall, you know, neither of these uh, is designed to prevent ASICs coming in in the future. They're they're simply you know point fixes to to break the existing ones. And I mean, I don't believe that's a sustainable way to keep developing. So we're looking for. Uh, a proof of work that that will last long term. You know, like Kryptonite lasted for three or four years before, you know, ASICs finally came around. So we're looking for something else that'll also last for at least three or four years. So since the la the most current hard fork, um, and looking at that, was there any drop in hashing power there? Were there suspected ASICs to even have come on since the previous fork? Okay, there there was a drop in hashing power. I I don't think it shows signs of ASICs, right? Uh, it's just that uh, the new, with the new tweaks, the algorithm is like 10% slower on a lot of CPUs. It's mm. five or 10% slower on a lot of GPUs. Yeah, so there is a noticeable drop, uh, but there's nothing like you know the drastic decline we had after the previous upgrade, where you know half, uh, yeah, half the hash power disappeared. Right, and it was very evident that there were ASICs, considering yeah. they then forked off and created exactly. their own coin. Exactly. Yeah. So there's you, no evidence that that happened this time around. Yeah. Do you keep your eye on that at all? The the uh, the other Monero coin that's sticking with ASICs is that something that's even relevant in the community that people are looking at to see, or is it? I, I haven't really been paying attention. I think once in a while someone will poke up and say, "Hey, I just looked at that and and nothing's happening." You know, so <laughs> as far as we can tell, you know, all of those uh, other, you know. The groups that decide to stay on the old fork have pretty much died off. So then, what is random JS? How is this now going to potentially be a you know more of a long term solution where we won't have to uh, continually upgrade the proof of, proof of work to uh, avoid the ASICs? Okay. Well, uh, basic idea. Um, you know, the reason that an ASIC is so much faster than a CPU or more efficient than a CPU is that it's only doing a single job, all right? And a CPU is is designed to do anything, right? It's a general purpose uh, processing unit. So uh, what we want is something that's more complicated, something that's too complex for a single purpose chip to execute, all right? That's, that's one of the conditions. The other, you know, and along with that is something that uses features that CPUs have that current ASICs didn't need to have yet, all right? So the idea uh, kind of is, if you were going to build an ASIC for this, we're going to force you to make it into a CPU, all right? And once, once we've done that, once we've said, 
you, you need a CPU to be able to perform this proof of work, then that puts everybody on more of an even surface. Uh, and uh, now the thing is, any simple algorithm you design, uh, you know, if you can describe it in like a paragraph or in a page of code, that can be trivially turned into an ASIC, right? Any single algorithm you, that you go with can do that. Uh, and, you know, there are other proof of work systems out there where they combine like a dozen different hashes or, you know, they sequentially run different uh, algorithms. And in every case, you know, an ASIC can easily be built for that because you're talking about a small number, a finite number of algorithms. And each one of them can be can be designed and burnt into a circuit, and then um, hooked up in any sequence they want. All right. So uh, the problem that we're trying to solve is, you know, how do we come up with something that isn't a single fixed algorithm? And so that's where random JS comes in to say, well, uh, we're going to randomly generate code. Right. So there is no single algorithm that anybody can uh, burn into hardware. Now, is this a new concept overall in 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 the com, you know in uh, the computing community, or as as random JS been used for maybe in some other way in some other fashion in the computing world, or is uh, completely novel? I I guess uh, okay. The like the the code that I started with as the proof of concept was was a program to randomly generate C code. And that was actually developed to test C compilers, right? To try and exercise them and uh, surface any bugs in the compiler. So this kind of uh, random code generation as a tool has been used before. Hmm. Um, I don't think it's been used before in uh, cryptocurrency proof of work. And so why random JS? Because I guess there's there's other things I've heard that kind of are similar in concept, but doing it in a different way. Uh, uh, like programmable proof of work is that's right. What what would be yeah, uh, the comparison I actually, there? I actually, uh, uh, yeah, I actually, you know, did some discussion with those uh, programmable POW authors as well. Um, so the basic, there's a couple key differences. You know, the ProgPow guys are focusing on GPUs, right? So they uh, and the algorithm that they've got. Uh, would run poorly on a CPU. Okay, so that's one of our key differences is that I'm still focusing on CPU support. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing, the most of their algorithm is based on eth hash and uh, still looks a lot like eth hash. Uh, and so the part that does random code in their, uh, in their algorithm is actually fairly small. Okay, and they're only talking about uh, 16 randomly selected instructions or, you know, a, a set of 16 instructions that can be randomly strung together. And, you know, if, if you look at that from a hardware designer standpoint, you say, well, you know, integrating 16 operations in a chip is, is easy. So I, I don't think that what they're doing is really going to deter any ASIC builders. Uh, the reason I chose JavaScript is because it's a fairly large language. It's a very co complex language. And to embed the entire language on a chip would be uh, difficult. It would use up a lot of chip real estate. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe this, this is a real theoretical question. So what, what would happen would have to happen uh, technology 
in terms of technology to reach that point where random JS would no longer be able to thwart an ASIC or prevent the building of an ASIC? On okay, a technology well, level, what would it, where would we need to be? For, first of all, uh, we I have to say that um, there are shortcuts that that we know about now that that might render this uh, not quite a viable approach. But if we just take it at its face value of uh, you know how do you accelerate JavaScript? Um, you know that's a problem that you know web browser companies have been working on for uh, five or ten years now. Okay, so. The, um, I'd say it's a difficult problem on that on that face. Uh, there probably aren't any big breakthroughs that are going to happen. Okay, uh, if something did happen, you know that could actually be a huge win because then maybe we'll see JavaScript uh, accelerator chips in smartphones in five years from now. You know that that could be great. Um, but th the fact is, the language itself is one of the more you know, awkward, ungainly ones to implement in a computing system. So I don't see JavaScript itself being something that uh, anybody comes comes out with a breakthrough with anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And now, but you're saying, but you saw there's other issues that we have That's to worry right. about. Okay, yeah. So, so we, you know, we've been actively discussing this, uh, you know, for quite a while now. Uh, one of the uh, one of the issues that surfaces is well, there is no reason for an ASIC developer to actually execute JavaScript. All right, they could they could take the random generator and modify its output to just you know modify pure machine code or something that's very easy for them to execute. Okay. Now, in our algorithm, we do require JavaScript source code to be generated, and uh, we check for that by you know, running a hash on the output. Right? So if you submit a proof-of-work solution and the hash doesn't match, then we say, well, you didn't generate valid source code. The thing of it is, uh, even though you generate valid source code, there's nothing requiring you to execute that source code. If you generate source code and machine code in parallel at the same time, and you only execute the machine code, then you know you you're kind of short circuiting our algorithm there, and so this is one of the key problems we're focused on right now is how to uh, how to avoid that shortcut. Hmm. So do you think this is something that uh, could be could be solved then and overcome, or I mean, where do you, where do you see random JS going? Uh, not. It's not really clear right now. It may be that uh, we don't use JavaScript in the end, and we actually use machine code ourselves. Because at that point, the shortcut is equivalent to the main code, right? So then there's you know no no further execution advantage there. So what kind of support are you seeing in the community for the you know the general concept if it could be tweaked correctly? Well. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of anticipation and interest in the in the concept. Yeah, um, obviously, you know, we need to. If you look at how bulletproofs got deployed, you know, uh, bulletproof code was available on testnet for over a year, and uh, then it was forwarded to three different uh, independent auditors. You know, and so we waited for all three of those auditors to come back with their full reports 
before anybody would say, okay, let's deploy this on mainnet. And so that that kind of scrutiny is going to happen here as well for you know for random JS. So would that kind of be next step then to maybe move something to testnet or we're not we're not really near that stage we're yet? Not, yeah, we're not really near that stage yet, but uh, one you know when we do get something onto a test net, then we're probably going to start looking for auditors and you know reviewers. yeah. Cool. So what do you think? Any, any other thoughts on random JS before I start asking you uh, other questions? Uh, well, um, no, I think that covers it for now. Yeah. So I guess, I, I guess since I have you, I'd love to be able to kind of hear your view on bulletproofs now that we have them. I mean, I think it's a no brainer that it's obviously, uh, it's working and it's, it's, it's a great thing. Yeah. Um, but I think that, uh, one of the questions I'm seeing, and maybe this is, uh, an obvious one, but how, how much more, if, or the question that that's kind of being posed, um, with Monero's dynamic block size, and now we have bulletproofs. Basically, if if Monero had the same transaction volume as Bitcoin today, and was at the price that Bitcoin's at today, uh, just trying to quantify and compare Monero to Bitcoin in terms of you know. Uh, its efficiency and transaction price, you know, kind of an apples to apples comparison. Uh, where do you think we would be at? So if, if Monero had the same transaction volume as Bitcoin today and the same okay. price as Bitcoin, would, would our transaction uh, fees be comparable to Bitcoin? I know it's, it's kind of a hard question, yeah, that's an interesting question to answer on the spot, but just I trying think- to... The, the way the, the fee mechanism works, um, you know, as usage of Monero goes up, the, the per byte fee actually decreases. So there's a, there's a strong chance actually that um, the Monero network would be cheaper to use, right? Um, as far as, you know, having equal transaction volume, you know, Monero transactions are still larger than vanilla Bitcoin transactions. Okay, so that would, you know, impose a lot more network bandwidth requirements. Uh, and it's not clear to me that um, all of the people, you know, all of people using it right now have uh, good enough internet access to sustain that. I don't know the answer to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, uh, yeah, the, the per transaction fee would certainly be lower. Yeah, I think that that's certainly an exciting thing, and I think that's it's it's something that people because with bulletproofs it was overnight. You know, you woke up the next morning and you went to send the transaction, and it went from uh, whatever it is thirty cents down to half a cent. Right. Whereas uh, with the dynamic block size, um, I don't even think people are realizing uh, you know the potential benefit there. I mean, obviously people in the know are, but I mean for uh, you know the the casual crypto user. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting that we're not, that's, I feel like it's not being even talked about enough as to how Monero is built to scale and is, is made to, you know, the more transactions, the better, which is right, right. an important feature to have. <laughs> yeah. If, if so you do, want things to actually be usable. Yeah. 
do you think Monero is uh, is better architected then in terms of scaling than Bitcoin is at its protocol level? Uh, yeah, I do believe that. Yeah, uh, you know, simply the fact that we do have dynamic scaling uh, versus a fixed block size. Yeah, that that's going to go a long way. It's not having a huge impact you know, this week, because, you know, transactions are so much smaller now that the blocks aren't, you know, we don't have whole blocks at the moment, right? There's, there's not enough transaction volume mm-hmm. to fill the current blocks. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely more forward looking, you know, more uh, future compatible. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because if you know, in Bitcoin land, if- the the meme is kind of like you know that bitcoin can scale and monero can't which is hmm. uh you know because yeah which is I, I it's kind of the opposite so right. what do you think of you know then bitcoin's approach with uh focusing on the second layer to where you know this for where they'll get their fungibility and also where where they'll get their scale with things like the lightning network yeah see that's okay um it's a simple principle of you know of software architecture or any architecture actually you know if you don't have a good foundation it doesn't matter what you try to build on top of it it's going to collapse uh with bitcoin and the lightning network uh you know if if you imagine that bitcoin's going to be the currency of the future for everyone and you want 7 billion humans on earth to be able to use it, you know, you're going to, it's going to take 550 years for 7 billion people to even uh, create their very first transaction and open a lightning channel. Okay. Uh, So saying that second layer scaling solutions will solve Bitcoin's problems is clearly false. Could you wait? Could you, yeah, could you? I saw you tweet that. Could you explain that a little bit more? Why is there, why would there be such a, a slow onboard time? Well, it's, it's simply that, you know, every channel that opens has to be part of a mainnet Bitcoin transaction. Okay. And so, again, if you're looking at, you know, one megabyte blocks and one block every 10 minutes, you know, there's only so many people you can enroll mm-hmm. in, in 24 hours or, or in 24 years, <laughs> you, know, you, you certainly can't get 7 billion people on board all at once. And then, so what is, what is the reaction to that? I mean, that, that seems like a, a very plausible, uh, issue. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's certainly a lot of denialism, uh, and I suppose there's some belief that not everybody needs to open their own channel. I'm not sure how that works, but mm-hmm. you know, I guess they, they assume that, uh, for example, merchants will open a single channel that handles multiple customers. And okay, maybe that works. But uh, to me, it still comes down to every individual who wants to use it has to have their own payment channel. They have to be able to open it somehow. Now, what do you, about for Monero? Do you think Monero should be looking at things like Lightning Network as well? Or for the reasons you're talking about here, it's not really even something that should be considered? Uh, I suppose there, you know, there's probably no harm in it. Uh, Lightning Network on top of Monero would probably function better than it does on top of Bitcoin. Um, 
Yeah, can you explain? I, I, I've been asking that question as well. I'm curious what your reasoning is as to why that, that might be the case. Uh, you know, the people, people in the Bitcoin community talk about Lightning Network not only solving scaling problems, but also solving privacy problems. And, you know, that's not really true, again, because you can monitor the coins entering and exiting the payment channels. All right. Uh, whereas in Monero, you know, all of those main main net transactions are still opaque. So you can't actually see coins moving around, right? So it, it's a better privacy solution on top of Monero than it would be on top of Bitcoin. Now, um, you know, if you look at Monero usage today and the network today, we don't need it yet. You know, we don't need that kind of a scaling solution yet because the current network is doing just fine. Mm-hmm. And then, so how about, so in terms of privacy, I get it. So it's, we're going from a, a privacy at a core protocol le level to now this second layer. So it's only going to help. Um, but then how about in terms of the, the architecture as well? Cause I mean, to run, what I don't understand is if you're running lightning network on the Bitcoin network and the idea being, you know, the lion's share of transaction volume will now be taking place on the second layer. Um, how is mining going to continue to secure the blockchain if there's no incentive to mine, especially without something like a tail emission that Monero uh, has? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if the majority of transactions are happening over Lightning, then right, miners aren't going to see those transaction fees. And obviously, when Bitcoin's emission ends, you know, the miners are going to have no reason to participate at all. And at that point, the network is dead. Yeah. So, I mean, people in your echelon, I mean, what, 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 what are the, uh, how are people responding to that? You know? Uh, uh, again, you know, the only word that comes to mind is denialism. I, I think people aren't even looking at the problem. Hmm. You know, I mean, if, and I suppose in some ways, you know, even if you're a Bitcoin developer and you're aware of the problem, you know, your hands are tied, right? Because you have this, uh, this contract, this, you know, community contract that says, this is what Bitcoin's emission is going to be. And, and you can't just go and change it now. Right. So their, their hands are tied behind their back. Yeah. What do you think about uh, Mimblewimble? Um, uh, Grin is implementing it, which you know doesn't yet exist, but uh, <laughs> and then, but it's also being talked about. I've heard it being talked about as potentially being used in conjunction with Monero as like on a side chain. Are these things you've ever looked at or considered? Uh, I haven't really looked deeply into that. Um, you know, I've obviously heard people talking about that. Um, it might be a good idea. Uh, but if you look at what Mimblewimble really offers, you know, they, they claim that um, you can have a very lightweight blockchain because you don't have to keep historical blocks or something to that effect. Um, and the reality is that, you know, that's not entirely true. You know, somebody needs to be archiving this stuff. And uh, the other part that goes with this is there's nothing preventing somebody from doing a full archive node. And if they do that, then they can uh, 
de-anonymize what's going on on the network. Okay, so Mimblewimble kind of, its privacy depends on the fact that everybody is pruning information all the time. Mm-hmm. If somebody decides not to prune, then they can actually break the privacy. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I, I would like to do a show just on Mimblewimble. Um, try to kind of get to the bottom of that. Uh, what what do you about Grin? What what is your feeling of Grin? I mean, it's obviously just an impl- implementation of Mimblewimble, uh, but do you think this is kind of a project worth uh, looking into? And um, well, it's getting a lot I of would, attention. I would say it's interesting to look at the technology. Uh, I you know I have nothing to say about them until they've launched their mainnet. <laughs> Gotcha. What do you think of this kind of this other recent claim that's been going around uh, by, you know, being pushed by the Bitcoin maximalists, uh, basically that something like Monero uh, requires more trust uh, than something like Bitcoin, uh, where everything is transparent. And, you know, if there was uh, some kind of emission bug or something, it would be completely obvious in Bitcoin as opposed to uh, in Monero, where it may go undetected. So therefore, there being more trust in math and trust in the developers. Uh, do you think that's, there's any credit to that? Yeah, that doesn't seem like a valid argument. You know, if you look at the... You know, there have been inflation bugs in Monero code and there have been bugs in the Bitcoin code. Uh, you know, the Monero bug was detected before it was ever exploited on the net, which was a good thing. Um, I think the, the point here is you have to know what you're looking for if, if you claim we could, we could spot a bug, bug like this faster on the Bitcoin network. All right. Clearly you know, they didn't spot this one. And uh, it's all about finding the bug in the code. You know, they, they didn't see it on the network. Right. So I don't believe that the network transparency or opacity is really a factor here. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's just, it's all about, you know, is there a bug in the implementation? Because uh, we you know, we have to trust the math, right? Uh, and the, the math is sound in both of these cases, right? So it really comes down to was was there a bug somewhere? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the same in, in any code base, right? So whether it's Bitcoin or Monero, you're you're trusting the math, and you're trusting there's some trust in the developers as well who are implementing it. There's really no right. difference. Uh, the math just might be a little bit more complicated in Monero. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so do you think there's any place for a coin like Bitcoin that is, you know, transparent at its core? Do you think there's kind of a necessary, there's utility there that's it's serving, a, it will eventually serve a purpose that Monero can't fulfill? Or is it that if you built this core protocol like Monero and it works and it becomes large enough that it would be able to kind of not just do the privacy and fungible thing, but if you want, you could backstep and also, you know, do the 
reveal, you know, make it transparent uh, as needed. Yeah, you know, I mean, Monero has optional transparency, and I think that's the right approach. Uh, Bitcoin and its derivatives and all the forks and clones based off of it, you know, they're none of them behave like real money. You know, really what they behave like is uh, a big surveillance machine. And uh, no, I really don't see a valid use case for them anywhere. That, that's just not the way you want your money to behave. Now, but from the standpoint of a, being a protocol, because uh, you obviously are quite familiar with protocols, um, do you think this is a case where it makes sense for there to be one protocol that that wins? The, the, you know, one protocol on the internet that will be used for transferring value. Uh, that's that's an interesting question. I, I think ultimately yes. You know, it's like uh, if you look at the way the internet has evolved, uh, you know, you can look at email protocols, you know, the, there were two or three competing ones back in the dawn of time. And now there's just one SMTP and that's used everywhere. And I think, yeah, for interoperability, for usability, you really only want to have one single protocol at the end, at the end of the day. Um, it may not be Monero, you know, it may be some new one that we haven't even seen yet, but, uh, I don't see a valid use case for like five or 10 running in parallel all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not, you know, something like, you know, Bitcoin, because it's, it obviously has a first mover advantage. Um, and maybe because it, it's more acceptable, um, in in you know the communities of of governments uh because you know the fact that it's transparent so therefore maybe it won't be uh, uh as susceptible to regulation that maybe something like a bitcoin has more of a chance of surviving for those reasons and it's a good enough protocol so even though it's not the best form of of uh you know money transfer we can create on the internet that maybe we'll just have to live with it. And that's the one that ultimately wins for those reasons. Uh, I don't think a first mover advantage is any kind of guarantee. You know, I mean, uh, just today I was reminded of the existence of MySpace. You know, when's the last time anybody thought about MySpace? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah, first mover is not a guarantee. And as far as government regulation, that that could go any number of ways you know the if you look at what's been happening in europe with the gdpr the general data protection regulations you know there, there's been a much stronger emphasis on consumer privacy in europe all right and if you put the current crop of crypto coins into that environment uh you might find that you know bitcoin and others won't pass muster for consumer privacy protection and a coin like Monero would. So, you know, it, it's not obvious that um, when government regulation enters the scene that Bitcoin will be the obvious choice. You know, it may not be. 
That's an interesting take on it. Yeah, I think uh, everybody was kind of has been looking at it uh, from the flip side perspective that it's more friendly to governments, but I guess it depends what government you're talking about um, and more progressive governments that are actually, you know, taking a stance and starting to more highly consider, uh, you know, the, the need for privacy and for in, in this digital age may actually be more open to something that's protecting privacy on a protocol level. Right. That's an interesting take. So, are there are there anything uh, anything else that you're excited about in terms of development in in Monero Land? The, that's you kind of see on the horizon. Things that you're working on. What is it that you kind of Google and follow? And uh, what's your other than the the ran the random JS? What else is it that you're very interested in now in Monero? Well, okay. The I suppose the other things that occupy my time. You know, obviously, I spend a lot of time thinking about database work, and uh, I look at what's coming out in new generations of ARM CPUs, new generations of AMD CPUs, and just looking at um, power efficiency, you know, performance per watt, and those sorts of considerations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you? What's your take on the? You know these proof of work coins use too much electricity and, and we're going <laughs> to destroy the environment. You know, it's, that is something that kind of haunts me. You know, I sit here and think, gosh, proof of work kind of sucks. It would be great if we had some other mechanism to, uh, to protect and secure the network. It would, you know, I just don't know what that is yet. And so, yeah, even with the random JS, because I know I when you mentioned that, um, you know, if we eventually get to the point where where ASICs kind of crack it, uh, then that means there'd be a development in the in the JavaScript script world, which would be a, a you know an additional benefit. So, do you think? Are you thinking in, the, in those terms then with proof of work as well? Like, could it serve an additional use or is that the nature of proof of work that it's just meant to be a, a big waste? I think, yeah, it's the nature of proof of work that it's just meant to, you know, consume resources, you know, and, and that's the point that uh, it makes it expensive for an attacker to try and subvert the network, right? Because you just got to deploy so many resources to be able to launch an attack. Um, if, if you have a proof of work that has another useful function uh, that starts to distort how how strong it can be at protecting the network. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, that's really all I got. I mean, uh, I crammed in a lot of questions there. Thank you. Okay. Sure. <laughs> and I, I know I know it's late where you are. Yeah. Uh, thank you for you know coming on the show. Thank you for taking your time. Thank you for doing it at this time. I know it's very late. <laughs> um, sorry, I was a little late. I was running running from work. Um, really appreciate your time and your thoughtful answers. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. I'll talk to you later.